I love the opportunity to speak on worship, and we're doing this today, obviously, because we're excited that tonight is our, our night of worship, and looking forward to it. Hope you're planning to be here at 6.30, all three services, all in one room, all at one place. I hope we just line the walls and just blow the roof off of this place. We're, we're so looking forward to it. I have some things in my life that, that are true about worship, really, that I learned as a kid, and, and the main point of what I want to give you today is something that I think that I learned when I was about 10 years old in my kids' ministry, the children's church that I grew up in. I can remember a story about a particular king from the Old Testament, and from that story, as a 10-year-old, I framed just a phrase in my mind. I don't know if the children's pastor said it. I don't know if anybody said it. It was just something that that stuck out in my mind from that story. I want to share it with you in, in just a moment. But what is worship to you? I mean, if you haven't been around church very long, or maybe this is your first time here, or you've stayed away from church, whatever your circumstances, what is worship to you? I mean, for some of you, it's, it's music. For some of you say it's not music. It's much more than that. For Everyone seems to have their different definition. If you're someone who just loves worship, then you would love actually to define it. You'd like for me to hand you the mic, and you've got things to say. People that love it and are passionate about it, they are really passionate about it. And it's such an incredible, incredible topic to, to come around. It's all through the scriptures. What is worship to you? I mean, I think we see worship all around us. We all have a propensity, a desire inside of us to worship. I mean, you can see it at a football game, right? I mean, you put on your red and your black or your crimson or your orange or your blue and gold. You put on whatever color that you put on. And whether you're there live or not, you are standing, you're waving your arms like you just don't care. And you're screaming at TVs and coaches. And sometimes you're saying Jesus words, sometimes you're not. But with all of that enthusiasm, you are worshiping for all that you have. I mean, if you, if you love to go to concerts, you know what it is to be in a place and to feel this idea that all of us have this propensity, this desire inside of us to worship. I mean, I've been to a U2 concert. I have never experienced worship on that level in my life. I mean, we were out of our minds. I mean, Bono just walks out and the edge begins to play. And I'm not even sure if he sang or what happened. He just held his mic like out to the audience and we just sang for like two hours. It was incredible. We still haven't found what we were looking for, but it was an awesome worship experience. We all have inside of us the propensity, the desire, the want, the urge to worship something. And I'm telling you that something when everything else is stripped away, that something is Jesus. That's what was created in the heart of every single one of us. That's what we're desiring to do. And so people who don't even know him, but who are screaming their heads off at a football game, it's the very evidence inside of them that they were made for more. They were made to worship. They were made to glorify God with everything that they've got. He created them for purpose. And that purpose was to glorify him in everything. That's what we were made for. So what is worship? If it's not just music, if it's not just the service, what is it? I have a simple definition. I don't know where I heard it as a kid. It was actually one that our creative arts pastor, Phil, he brought up this week too. It's one that, that he's known for a long time. Worship is simply offering all that I am for all that he is. Offering all of myself for all that God is. Pastor John Piper says it's a strong affection for God rooted and shaped by the truth of Scripture Author Oswald Chambers says, worship is giving the best he has given you, giving right back to God what he has given you. Where do 
all the definitions of worship come from. Well, they may come from the Psalms, they may come from Isaiah, they may come from other songs in the scriptures, but probably the central passage comes from Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. I'm going to read verse one now and come back to verse two in just a little bit. But the apostle Paul very simply writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Offering yourself to God, all that you are for all that he is, that is your spiritual worship. It's not merely a service. It's not merely a program. It's not merely singing songs. Worship is all of life. But here's the danger. When worship is everything, then worship can also be nothing. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying or the phrase, something along these lines, when everyone is special, no one is. I think it comes from the Disney movie, The Incredibles, by the way. But when everyone is special, no one is. When everyone wins, no one wins. When everyone gets the participation trophy, no one really won. We're not going to get to heaven one day and get a participation award for living a life of worship. I pray that I get to heaven one day and hear my Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I want. Worship is all of life. But when it's everything, it can be nothing. So hear me today. Worship should be deliberate. It should be intentional. The writer of Romans 12 says, I appeal to you. I beg you. I urge you. I encourage you. I get up close. I'm getting in your face here in just a loving way I can and tell you that this is a game changer. All of your life should be worship. This is such a key in the Christian life to live your life for God. It is your spiritual act of worship. Eugene Peterson says in the message, he says it this way, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Everything you do, worship is intentional. It's deliberate. It's on purpose. So when I was 10 years old, I think fifth grade, okay, I can remember being in fifth grade. I heard a story about a king from the book of Second Chronicles. He's covered from Second Chronicles 17 to, I think, chapter 20. He may get one more. You can look it up in small group this week. You can read about his life. I remember him because his name is King Jehoshaphat. And it's just fun to say. I mean, as a 10-year-old boy, honestly, the name Jehoshaphat has the word fat in it. There was really nothing else I needed to hear. I mean, I was leaning in at that point. And the other reason I was leaning in is because in the church that I grew up in, our children's pastor, Herb, he actually led us to do a play about Jehoshaphat. The name of the play, you can still find it on Amazon if you really want to look for it. It's called Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat. I still remember the lyrics to the song about Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat. Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat, a good, good king is he. A good, good king who's everything a good, good king should be. Everybody knows him. He's the one we all adore because Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat loves the Lord. I mean, that's the way it went. There were motions. There was the whole thing. Listen, don't ever have your kids miss a morning of Kid Quest, okay? Because you just never know. You never know what Pastor Brent is going to do or what one of our other communicators up there, but you never know what God is going to put into a kid's heart and how it's going to stay with them forever. I can tell you the message that I'm giving for the first time today, this little phrase that stuck with me, I heard as a 10-year-old boy, I don't know who said it, if anyone said it, it's just what the Holy Spirit of God said to me. So Jehoshaphat, who I have no idea if he was actually fat, by the way, it's totally unfair. But Jehoshaphat is a good king. 
But he's made some mistakes. He's done some things that he should not have done. One of the things that he did was he aligned himself with King Ahab. So this is the period of time where Israel and Judah are actually two separate kingdoms. Jehoshaphat is a king in the southern kingdom. He aligned himself with the king of the northern kingdom, Ahab. Not a good dude. Guy married Jezebel. He chose that for himself though, so that's his deal. But he was not a good king. And aligning himself with that, actually there was a battle where Ahab is actually killed in the battle and the Bible says that God allowed Jehoshaphat to get away But then God comes to Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 19 and he says, But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you. So God's not always pleased with everything that Jehoshaphat does. So in response to that, he really tries to turn it around. He makes some reforms. He puts some judges in place. He puts some trainings in place for the judges to try to have the kingdom operating according to how God wants the kingdom to operate. And then we get to just an incredible, incredible chapter. One of the greatest stories to me in the Old Testament and one that I learned as a 10-year-old boy, Second Chronicles chapter 20. If you have your Bible or if you have your app or whatever you have, illuminate it now. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Here we go. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Mennonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. There's a couple things to understand about all of these names that are getting thrown out in this passage. So there are three kingdoms that have come against the nation of Judah and they've surrounded them. And here's something really, really important to understand, a little bit of the geography of the land. They are in En Gedi. And what does that mean? They're in the country already. Someone has let them in. I've been to En Gedi. The closest thing I can say is it looks like the High Shoals Waterfall. If you haven't been there, you should go check, check that out. They look really like their cousins. And so I've stood there and I can tell you that in Gedi, from there, you are not very far from Jerusalem. The enemy is really close. Ever been there? Enemies at the gate. Circumstances are right in your face. Trying to figure out what you're going to do. Maybe it was... Unexpected. I mean, somebody had to have let these people in. Somebody had to have allowed this to happen. It seems like that the people that Jehoshaphat had aligned himself with a couple of chapters before, the people of Israel, it seems like that they have now let the enemy in. The enemy is at the gate. They're on top of you all of a sudden. Maybe you have had a day like this where... You had no idea, but someone has stabbed you in the back. Someone has said something about you they shouldn't have. They've ruined your reputation. Maybe the phone rang and it was a circumstance you hoped never would come. Maybe you get the mail one day and there's an unexpected bill. Whatever it is, the circumstance that you never wanted to face, this thing, it's troubling you. It's all over you. You don't know how you're going to deal with it. It's right at your face. So what do you do? What could Jehoshaphat have done? Well, first of all, he could have, he could have fought. Wouldn't have been, no one would blamed him for fighting. I mean, the enemy is inside. What do you do? I mean, you get the militia together, you get the guys together, you send them out, you say, listen, go take care of this. We got to figure this out. We got to take care of things on our own. It's what we do. And for some of you, that's how you approach things, right? I got this. I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. 
I'm going to put my big boy, my big girl pants on. I'm going to go out. We're going to take care of business. I take care of my own. That's what I do. I mean, that even sounds like a good Southern Georgia thing, right? We take care of our own. That's what we do around here, right? Just going to take care of it. I'll figure it out. You could fight, just figure things out, or you can run. You can flee. I mean, as a king, he's important. It's really important that the enemy not capture him. So maybe they just decide, you know, we're going to send the king away with a small group and he's going to, he's going to flee. He's going to run and hide. And no one, would have, no one would have said that was a bad idea. Sounds like a good idea. But instead, Jehoshaphat does something else. He immediately, enemies at the gate, the first thing that he does is he calls everyone to pray. He calls everyone to pray. He calls everyone to pray, even to fast, to give up something and to seek God. And then he stands to speak. He tries to encourage everyone. I think with his speech, he's trying to get his own courage going. And then later on in the chapter, one of the prophets comes to him and says these words from God in verse 15. He says, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at the great horde for the battle. The battle is not yours. It's God's. Verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. You won't need to fight, but you will have to face it. The circumstances aren't going to magically evaporate and go away. You won't need to fight you will have to face it. So how does Jehoshaphat choose to face imminent, certain danger outnumbered by his enemies? How does he face it? Verse 21. He took counsel with the people and he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in his holy attires. They went before the army and said to them, to the singers, give thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. A couple of other clarifying statements from the chapter is just, they all helped destroy one another. None escaped. None of them escaped. It doesn't say that a few of them got away. It doesn't say that most of them got away, but we ended up winning the battle. In fact, some people look at this chapter and say it's the most complete military victory in all of Scripture. And how did they do it? They put robes on everybody and they sent the worshipers out first. I love that idea. If somebody's going to come shooting at me, I'm going to get right behind Jason. That sounds awesome. They sent... The worshipers out first and won the most complete victory in at least all of the Old Testament. By doing what? By letting worship lead the way. It's a value I try to hold to in my life. I got to tell you, it's hard. 
sometimes. When you don't know how the bills are going to get paid, when grief is overwhelming, when your circumstances, when you feel completely outnumbered, what do you do? Let worship lead the way. It's been in my head since I was 10 years old. I don't know if anybody ever said it or just God said it. And I say it to you today and I don't have any idea what you're facing. I know there's people in this room facing job loss. There's people facing cancer. There's people facing marriages on the brink of being ripped apart. There's people who have teens and kids who are spinning out of control and you don't have any idea what to do. And sometimes when we don't have any idea to do, we just spin and spin and spin. We don't do anything. Can I tell you from the scriptures in order to get the most complete victory possible, let worship lead the way. Let it be intentional. Let it be a deliberate decision in your life, even when you don't understand anything else, just to believe that God is in charge, that he is love, he is with you, he is for you, he has got you. If you don't know anything else, you can start right there and let worship lead the way. When we talk about worship, so many people want to talk about it, it's the, it's the more you know, the richer your worship is, and that's true, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but I, can I just tell you, if worship kind of weirds you out, if it feels too ethereal to you, if you're not sure what to think about all this, your starting point is Jesus. He's the ending point, by the way, but your starting point is Jesus. And can I tell you, God sent his one and only son for you. God is in charge. He is love. He is with you. He is for you. You can worship God with that right there. Let worship lead the way. When you don't know anything else to do, let worship lead the way. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice always at all times. First Peter chapter one, Peter says, though you have seen him, though you have not seen him, you love him, Jesus. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It is possible to have joy inexpressible and filled with whose glory? Not your glory, but with God's glory to where you can't even put it into words and thank goodness for the singers who put it into words for people like me. But I can begin to let worship lead the way. Let's go back to Romans 12 for just a moment. I read verse one a moment ago. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable. That's your spiritual worship. Now look at verse two. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't give in to everything else. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to blend into the crowd. It's so easy to go with the flow. It's so easy to just be in the stream of culture. But he says, be renewed, be constantly transformed over and over. When you're continually, deliberately orienting your life around worship, you are continually transformed and renewed. And some of you, we've been talking about in our Revive series, right now you would say, I need to be renewed. My marriage needs to be renewed. My very life, my attitude needs to be renewed. Can I tell you, in order for renewal to come, let worship lead the way. The Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, very close to what he says there in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When worship leads the way, it renews us. It renews us. Worship helps to keep things simple. It unravels 
the complexities in our life because we know where to begin and we know what the end is going to be when worship leads the way. One of the reasons, John Piper says, one of the reasons some simple, uneducated people live much more holy and upright lives than some Christians who are very educated is that their minds are far more deeply renewed. I love that. That kind of renewal, the renewal that God gives as we live our lives and worship to him over and over and over again, helps us see everything we do as worship, helps us to see God in everything we do. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's a way to approach life. It's how you should approach everything. It's how you approach work or hobbies or caring for your possessions. It's how you should approach relationships. It's how you should approach your marriage. It's how you should approach your kids, your parenting. You should always let worship lead the way, but not only that, you should see your relationships, how you interact with those people as your act of worship. Man, do I fall short on that one so many times. For me to allow the way that I act with Angela and with my boys, with Will and Wesley, for me to see that, as an act of worship, absolutely would transform every moment of our marriages, would transform our kids to not just allow worship to be a segment, something set aside in your life, but to let it be all of your life, to deliberately look for God's presence in everything, in every moment, in every relationship, everything that we do. Psalm chapter 29 says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord and the splendor of his holiness. The Bible says that the earth is filled with the glory of God, the ruach of God is the Hebrew word for glory, the weight of God, the earth is filled with the weight and presence of God. That's why you can cast all your cares on him because he's got you. He cares for you and your continual remindedness of that, of who God is and who he wants to be in your life is worship. Let worship lead the way. When you get devastating news, let worship lead the way. When you don't know what to do, let worship lead the way. When you feel lost, alone, confused, anxious, scared, whatever it is, let worship lead the way to have victory in your life. How? (laughs) How? Awareness is hard to coach. It's hard to give something real, real tangible and being aware of constantly, deliberately orienting your life around the things of God. But there are some simple things. We know them. We just take them for granted sometimes. I mean, the first one very easily is just prayer. It's a means of worship. Just begin each day with some simple words, some simple thoughts of praise. Just speak them out loud. Just some, just some gratitude. Asking God for a little help with that day. You do not have to get up in the morning and sit up and begin to sing completely off tune at the top of your lungs in your bedroom and scare your spouse half to death. I mean, you don't have to do that. It might get them out of bed, but you don't have to do that. But just get up and pray and say, good morning, Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, your mercies are new. Whatever you know, you may not know anything you feel like. Good morning, God, you're in charge. I got that one. I knew that one. I don't even know where it is in the Bible, but God, you're in charge. I believe that. God, your love. 
I have a hard time believing that some days, but I believe it today. I'm speaking that out loud to you, God, in this prayer. It's a moment of worship. You can find God, another way to orient your life around God completely and to worship him completely is just through the scriptures. Just open up the scriptures. I mean, there's so many great things in there. You, we read them so often to take them in, but we can also read them to give them back. To give them back to God, this, these words on the page, these, breath, these breaths of God on the page, we can just give right back to him. I love the Psalms. There's so many lyrics in there. There's so many poems in there, so many songs in there, and there's prayers for everything. I mean, David had a very full life. He wrote many of the Psalms. He didn't write all of them. Moses wrote some. Other guys wrote some. I mean, there's Psalms in there for people that you're mad at. There's things that you can pray for them, at them, whatever you want. There's moments where you can pray at God, mad at him, if you've ever been honest enough to be there. There's moments where you can pray for healing. There's moments where you can pray in worship and thankfulness and gratitude because that's what you're feeling in your heart and you don't know how to express it and other people have. And you can pray those right back to God. And certainly some of those Psalms in the ancient world and now in our world today, they've been put to music. Music glorifies God in a way that just truly can usher us into his presence. I mean, music has incredible impact on our lives. We've seen it over and over and over again. We all have favorite music. We all have music that makes us feel alive. We all have music that makes us feel contemplative. We all have artists that we love, but can I tell you, there's nothing better than a song that puts all the praise and all the glory on God himself. I love it. I I try to start the day with it. I mean, sometimes on the way to to school, I'll have it playing for my boys. Certainly on on the way to, to work, I'll have it playing before I try to get all the talk radio information before I turn it on anything silly that some DJ might be doing in the morning. I try to first and foremost allow myself to be surrounded with the presence of God through song. It's such a simple thing. Sometimes we just have it playing in the house. I think it just reminds us that God is in charge, that he's got us. I have go-to songs. I've got go-to scriptures. Listen, music is not worship, but the poets and the artists that create those lyrics have created lyrics many times, and even in the Psalms and even in modern-day hymns and, and songs, those songs become declarations of faith when we sing them out loud. But we have to be intentional. We have to focus our attention and our awareness on Him. We have to be deliberate. Begin every day. Can I just encourage you with this? Begin every day. Reminding yourself that you have been awakened by God, to a God, for God, a God that's already at work in the world. And our role is to join him in his presence, to join him in his work, and to take our part in it. Our prayers become declarations of worship as we give them back to him. Psalms chapter 34, excuse me, chapter 31, verse 14 says, but I trust in you, Lord, Oh Lord, I say, you are my God. I could read that. I could take that in. But I love having the opportunity to give it right back to him. Like Psalm 32, verse 7, you're a hiding place for me, for you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts 
of deliverance. Psalm 86, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. My Bible is underlined all over the place, particularly in the Psalms, just from little moments where I've just spent a minute or two with him, and I've underlined something, and I come back to it, and I give it right back to him. They become declarations for me. I could go on and on and on about them, but they become declarations of personal worship. They don't remind me of how great I am. They're not like a self-help coach, but they remind me of how great God is, of his faithfulness, of his steadfastness, of his love that never fails, of his grace and mercy that endure. Others may come and go, but the scriptures say he will remain. And these declarations... These moments where we're orienting our life around God and we're giving it all right back to him, giving back to him even the words that he has breathed out and given to us. When we give those right back to him, our life just becomes a kind of a dance with God where there's revelation and response. We read his word and we pray to him, we spend time with him. He reveals a little more of himself. And as he does that, we respond. Life becomes this beautiful dance of revelation and response. That's what worship does for us. He reveals himself as we seek him. Every day we are reminded of our absolute dependence on him. That's what happens when worship leads the way. Worship ultimately leads us to a place of desperation. Ultimately, that's where worship leads. I think there's something, the spirit of God in us that knows that and sometimes holds us back because desperation doesn't sound good. Desperation sounds hopeless. Desperation sounds like there's no way out. Desperation sounds like the enemy is at the gate and there's nothing I can do about it. But worship leads us to a place of desperation and in Christ, desperation is not hopelessness. But in Christ, desperation means he has got us and I don't have to do anything but trust him. John chapter 15, Jesus said it this way. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Can I tell you, this would be insulting if it had come from anybody else. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing but with him. Anything is possible. Apart from him, there's no purpose. Apart from him, it just feels like we're, life is pointless. We're spinning out of control. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, all things are possible. That's where desperation leads us to in Jesus Christ. A desperation that says, I'm not going to try to fix it on my own anymore. A desperation that says, this is not just going to be, we'll work it out, we'll figure it out. I'll fight the battle on my own or I'll just run off. But rather a desperation that says, God, I'm throwing this on you because you've got it better than I ever could get it on my, on my own. You've got me, God. My heart cries out. That's desperation. But you answer me. Psalm 63 says, God, you're my God. 
I can't get enough of you. I've worked up so much hunger and thirst for God traveling across dry and weary deserts. Pause right there. Just stop. Hang on. Don't read it. Some of you are still reading. Don't do it. Look up. Look up. Dry. Weary. I can't get enough. I don't have what I need. I'm desperate. Now you can keep reading. So here I am in the place of worship, wherever you are in his presence, not just this place. Eyes open, drinking in your strength and your glory and your generous love. I am really living at last. My lips brim praises like fountains. I bless you every time I take a breath. My arms wave like banners of praise to you. Every time I take a breath, that's intentional, that's deliberate, that's orienting your life around God. I love what Pastor Louis Giglio said in a message a couple years ago. He said, worship is giving God his breath back. Come on. Worship is giving God his breath back. He put that breath in your lungs. So how can we not but live our lives full of worship and praise for his fame, for his glory, for his renown, not for me. I'm not that great, but my savior is. And at the end of the day, it is all about Jesus, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who put the breath in my lungs, I will pour out my praise to him. I will live my life for him. That is worship. 